Welcome to Constructed Futures. I'm Hugh Seaton. Today I'm here with Ivo von Brooklyn and Stephen McDonald, partners at PropTech Connection. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having us today, you. Hi, Hugh, and thank you. Yes. So let's start with the, the where you are. So, so I think Stephen is in Australia, and Evo, I don't know where you are. Well, I'm actually, as we speak, in South America. I've been traveling over the last weeks across Latam, but typically I'm living in, in Chicago. Got it. And Stephen, where you're? Am I right? You're in Australia. I am. Yes, I'm in Sydney, Australia, but I'm Great. originally from the UK, which is why there might be a disconnect with the accent. I can hear a little Scottish, and uh, with which, of course, is appropriate for McDonald, isn't it? Well, I, I wanted to start with that because I, it's a fun lead-in to what you actually do. Let's talk a little bit about what the PropTech connection is. So, so maybe just to give some background, and thanks for asking the question. So, won't go into all the details about Stephen and my background, but we have been navigating around this PropTech ecosystem for for quite some time, and. Around, what is it, 21 months ago, we decided to set up the PropTech connection. And what we try to do as a business is to facilitate an expedited adoption into that entire PropTech. So what that means is that we position our business to sit between three different stakeholders. So one, on one end, we're having obviously the investors. Second, we're having the technology buyers like the REITs, the agencies and developers or builders to say. And then the third piece of the pie is, is, is the PropTech. So we sit between that ecosystem. And our goal is to make sure that that entire process is smoother in a global context. So this, at very high level, uh, that's much more context with maybe Stephen, you want to elaborate a little bit more on that? Yes, I think, I think that's a good way to, to, to kind of give it a framework. Um, we, we kind of see ourselves as, as problem solvers in a way. And the, the, the whole prop tech ecosystem is complex. It's quite hard to actually conceptualize because it is so broad, but also another factor is the fact that investors have a very unique set of metrics or language that they speak. Technology companies do and real estate is heavily nuanced as well. And as Evo alluded to, our backgrounds are, have been in every one of those um, verticals. And that means that we're quite well experienced in being able to, to piece together the, the jigsaw, if you like, in terms of getting everyone on the same page in terms of what they're looking for. So that is, that is in essence what we do. What did you guys see two years ago that made you made you make this make up your mind? Were there was there a, a deal or a, a a situation you saw that made you say, you know what, this 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 industry really needs our our help, needs our us to kind of help make markets, so to speak. Yeah, I I think you that there are a couple of different things. To me personally, I think it's a really exciting time to be in technology, generally speaking, because. I firmly believe that with all, all these technologies, right? We talk about AI, we talk about big, big data, we talk about blockchain, we talk about so many different technologies that are be, de being developed in an exponential way that are all coming together in this upcoming years, combined with obviously a lot of regulatory pressure from, for example, Europe with the new Green Deal, regardless of what we think about it. And then all these very bold and ambitious objectives from real estate companies that all coming together, I thought was a very big opportunity in the marketplace combined with obviously navigating in that ecosystem and actually seeing a lot of the challenges that we hear from all the different stakeholders. Again, going back to the investors, the buyers and the prop tech, Stephen can elaborate a little bit more. He used to be investing in, in, in prop tech himself in a previous life, but there were quite some challenges there. But Stephen, maybe I'll hand it over here to you. 
Yes, thank you. Well, as as Evil says, challenges, and it's there was there's a gap there was a gap in the market from what I could see in terms of prop techs were struggling to get access to capital. They were often raising capital because they actually needed to fund quite long sales cycles, and those long sales cycles were actually due to the fact that as I go back to that kind of matching piece, and, and an example I'll use is that one of the common prior misconceptions, if you like, I think in, in PropTech is a lot of the young companies hadn't necessarily fully appreciated some of the nuances within real estate, but also as in the terminology and also some of the metrics, but also with regards to how applicable some of their technology is. And what I mean is that just because you have one asset owner that's maybe a shopping center owner and you have a competitor in the shopping center, the use case for the technologies could be very different. So though it's the same asset class, the use case can be very different. And as a result, you saw companies struggling actually from a, a funding, but also from a cash flow perspective to actually navigate that. And I think when we set this up, our aim was to actually, as Evo says, facilitate adoption by being able to kind of speed things up by getting the right people in front of each other. And just to kind of close that loop in terms of what we saw, the final piece that we saw was frustration from technology buyers because many were spending cash, they were deploying resources, employing people, but they weren't getting that ROI. And part of that we think is because there wasn't a great enough visibility of what was going on in market and what was relevant for them. So this is one of the key things that we do. And we've said about this at quite a industrial level, I would say is we've actually mapped out, we think a pretty solid chunk in the high 90%, we think of the ecosystem in terms of technologies, and we've then distilled that as relevant for the, the people that we work with. And I think that was, there's still a big gap there. We think we've closed a lot of it, but a couple of years ago, the gap was was even bigger. And do you start with the property owners? Is that kind of the center of your of your universe? And then you go out from there to find the technology? Or what's the, you know what I mean? Where Where do you start doing what you do? It, it really depends on the customer. And so for us, we probably are more predominantly funds focused mm-hmm. in terms of helping funds originate global deals. And we can kind of talk some more of that maybe later on in terms of what's going on in the investment market. So we probably more predominantly funds, but we do have a significant number of tech buyers that we work with as well. And obviously a, a number of prop techs as well. So it just depends on which customer we're working with. It's it depends on how we, we approach it. Yeah, and, and maybe just to elaborate a little bit more, and, and thanks for that, Stephen. But what I think was also one of the things that we saw is that not always best-in-class technologies um, are winning simply because they don't have that visibility of accessibility to some of those buyers. So we thought assuring that there is a better overview, let's say, of what, what's out in the market and having a very compelling story between, let's say, the technology side of the business and real estate, as Stephen mentioned, obviously, is very nuanced. So um, being able to distill and articulate the most relevant information between the two different stakeholders, I think, is is quite compelling and where we see a lot of interest. And then the second point that I wanted to make is also that it's a very difficult ecosystem to navigate. To, to Stephen's point, they're probably... I don't know, 150, 200 different BMS. And obviously technology is not limited to any geographical limitations. So 
buyer wants just wants to understand which specific technology works best for their specific use case, right? So I think that there's a big task, and as Stephen mentioned, I think we're quite underway to 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 bring more efficiency into that ecosystem. But there's still about some some lag way to be done. Well, it's enormous, right? Are there parts of the ecosystem that you find you're spending more time looking at? Like asset, yeah. different asset classes or different parts of the of the process? I, I think the way we look at it is more around uh, thematics. So I think the, the, the very buzzy words or letters at the moment is, is ESG, but that obviously underpinning ESG is an, an, a number of components. So obviously that's one thing we're looking at are, are involved with heavily data as well. I think, as I, as I kind of mentioned at the top, there, there's a couple of challenges with this concept of prop tech. A, it's very broad. It's not just relating to buildings. You've got um, mobilities, you've got um, smart, smart cities, um, but also different prop techs or technologies within that are at different parts of their, of their race. And I think data, particularly in the use of that data, is still being leveraged in terms of the, the return it can bring. And I think that's probably the the easiest vertical for people to go into to actually get the best ROI at this stage. And I think that's why you're seeing so much money being poured in, both from an investment, but also from a customer point of view. And when you say data, what sorts of data? Let's let's get concrete here, no pun intended. What what sorts of, of, of data are you finding people are responding to and, and getting ROI from? So there's a, there's a number of areas. There's... There's unused data sets, which I think are now arising from digitization of, of processes. So particularly in construction, which has been notoriously difficult to actually get information on. There's a number of technologies now that are actually driving up data to be able to deliver projects better. You can do better health and safety. You can reduce things like rework um, from a construction perspective. On the commercial side, if you like, or the yeah, the office sector, whatever you want to call it, you're obviously then seeing a lot more sensors in there. You're then starting to want to be able to, to track utilization of space. You're seeing asset, the use of assets evolving completely. And obviously with that rich set of data, people are now looking for much more insights into that. I guess the challenge is across everything is, and where it's still a level of maturity is still needed, is that you are having more and more data now, and it's now actually a case of being able to apply the right data to the right use case. So just because you have lots of data doesn't mean it's valuable. So I think that's probably the key areas we're seeing in, in data. Evo, is that, have I missed anything there? No, I think you outlined it very well. And we see we see a lot of interesting technologies indeed in the, in the data space coming by, but I think you, you address all the points, Stephen. How are you seeing people, I mean, the one of the ways that companies get better at using the data that they're already generating is hiring people. Are you seeing that there's, there's you know, a, a kind of a, a class of, of owner and developer that are becoming more data focused? I mean, most of them have a pr are pretty financially sophisticated, so it's not like the numbers are, are a barrier. But are you seeing that there's more and more you know, respect for the fact that you need to invest in people to help you make sense of this? Yes, very, very much so. I think it's a, a, an excellent point is actually around the resourcing of prop tech. I think part part of the challenge has actually been defining the problem that needs to be solved and then finding the solution and then finding someone to resource that. Mm -hmm. So 
I think we're getting to the stage now where people are getting greater clarity on what resource they need to deliver what they want. I think um, in terms of what those roles are, I mean, that's also another challenge is that some companies, they have a CDO, sometimes technology transformation sits under strategy, sometimes it sits under the CFO. So although people are getting there, there's, there's still a long way to go as again, it's just such a difficult space to navigate. It's hard to, to have a consistent application of things. I think some of it is that, that all industries have a tendency to only look inside their own industry and often inside their own company, right? So even though this problem kind of has been solved elsewhere, nobody's going and saying, hey, how did the guys in insurance do it? Or how did the people in you know, retail deal with it? Because a, a lot of the fundamental issues that are being dealt with in prop tech and construction tech have been, have been looked at elsewhere. But you know, again, you're not going to call that the head of Walmart and say, how'd you guys do the, the data thing? That's very true. And I think is this is why PropTech is so unique as well. And it's one of its key challenges. It's such a relationship-based business. And the use of data kind of almost was pitched as um, replacing that, where I think now it's kind of seen as augmenting it, that ob- objective audit, if you like. So I think that's definitely been a support of people with getting um, resources on board. I, I think the other thing as well is in, in this capital, there's a lot of dry powder around asset acquisitions and also with an investment. But if you focus on asset acquisitions, due to the fact there is so much capital, the competition for acquisitions is very, very tough. And that is why you're starting to see these deal or data aggregator platforms that help large funds acquire assets become very, very valuable. I mean, you saw JLL bought Skyline AI, but you're also seeing other ones coming up as well. And what that's what that shows to me is that because there's so much competition there, people are now actually looking at almost investment banking style models in terms of the technology just to get a, get ahead of the curve. And, that, and that's a function of the competition at the moment in terms of buying land or, or buying premium assets. How interesting! I wouldn't have I wouldn't have thought of that. Tell me more about how it's it's almost like an iBank. Like what what do you mean by that? Well, as I said before, the the the, the real estate industry is very really relationship centric, and although a lot of the private equity funds will have very strong financial models, I think now with the level of capital, as I say, across the world chasing assets to get a yield, then you really need to be able to push those assumptions pretty strongly and in, in a very dynamic way. And I think the core, the, the, the premium or the trends that we're seeing is that the premium assets are still doing very, very well as people are looking to secure yield, whether that be in, in commercial or, or retail, but then in residential, for example, I know you in America, it's the SFR or, or multifamily, obviously the land acquisition cost is so high. So you need to have all that data at your fingertips and models and whatever else to be able to to make very quick decisions on assets which previously you were relying a lot on on relationships or having access to maybe markets others didn't. And so, and what, what I'm taking then is is your you know your point is because of the speed of the market, relationships are in, invaluable, but may not may not be fast enough or broad enough. So middlemen or or market makers or you know matchmakers or people who kind of provide that connectivity like you there's more and more of a need for is that what you're saying yes that's right it's the, it's the 
the market is now getting so big and the, and the desire to to place in relevant things that meet criteria specific criteria is why is why we exist yeah, that's and, great and, and maybe one one more point to add here i i think another key trend that we here see at the PropTech connection is that the PropTech ecosystem is also going more global i think initially you know some years ago it was much more everybody was looking into their own silo or continent or country to say and now we see actually both from a tech buyer perspective but also from an investment perspective that a lot of those folks are starting to look outside their borders uh, to say so it becomes much more a competitive global landscape uh, w which again makes it di more difficult to navigate but also creates obviously a lot of opportunities at the same time that's great and again especially if you're able to help connect people that otherwise wouldn't know each other. Uh, you can really find some, some value in, in, in almost arbitrage. How do you guys think about, you know, switching gears a little bit to the, the technology side, so the, the software companies and so on. How do you think about that market and, and, and the, the kind of funding situation that is being faced there? Evo, do you want to have a crack at this one? Yeah, no. So I, I think let me just in general terms, I think we we, we see a, a couple of things regarding funding. As Stephen has already mentioned, we tend to see a lot of capital sitting on the sidelines. So you see actually a lot of uh, funds popping up a lot in Europe, a lot in APAC, obviously a lot in the US. That's So there's a lot of capital in, in the traditional VC world available, ready to be deployed. Another thing that we tend to see is that actually a lot of private equity capital is also sitting on the sidelines that wants to enter the space. So um, just more on a high level, if you look in terms of the market, uh, I think or we think that, you know, consolidation is going to take place. You see, obviously, the, the prop tech market is maturing. You see the first IPOs, you see some SPAC deals. So I think you're going to see some roll-ups there. And then obviously also investment banks are, are starting to get in. So just on the, on the capital side, I think, a lot of excitement, but it's it's about that visibility piece, right? So going back to what we already discussed earlier, it's about making sure that you see those deals and those opportunities globally. So yeah, that doesn't answer the question fully, but just to give you an insight on the, on the fund size and what we see there on the capital side. And are you seeing that that's more of a global picture? I know you, we've used the word global a number of times, but in terms of cross-border investment. So, you know, there used to be a time when Silicon Valley only invested in Silicon Valley and I think that's less true. And then there was a, a time when Americans really only invested in, in America and, and the same being true overseas. But it feels like there's more exploration across borders than maybe was the case before. I, and that's not really specific to PropTech, but are you seeing that as well? 100%. So I think uh, this is one of the reasons why I'm traveling to the last <laughs> three weeks across yeah. LATAM is that we see actually some really good opportunities here. Um, and, and actually in the US, you see that there, because of that competition for capital, obviously it means that valuations go up. So we have been told by some of our close relationships in the US investment world, some significant investors that have actually made their first investments across the pond uh, to say that they're very happy with those outcomes because sometimes those valuations are half or a third of what they would have been in the US. And and so, yeah, that's definitely something that we see. But on the other hand, if you, as an investor, you, if you, you know, look into deals outside the U.S., let's say, or obviously, let's say cross co uh, a continent, 
then typically uh, you want to get involved a little bit later, right? So you look at Series A+, plus, yeah. I would say you're not going to get in in the pre-seed or seed round, at least you're saying. That makes sense. You can't assess the risk if it's overseas quite the same way you might uh, really early stage if it's closer to home. Are there are there levels that you tend to play at in terms of, of we talked about, you just mentioned pre-seed, seed, and so on. So what sort of, if you think about the levels of investment, the stages of investment, whether it's pre-seed, seed, series A, and up to series F, where do you guys like to play? Yes, for us, our, our network is, is extensive. So we're able to play in all. I think we have access to something like three and a half um, or $4 billion in terms of investment funding. So what what that means is we take every de- deal on merit. And for us, it's about actually th- finding through that network whether we have the right match for the tech. So it's, it's less a function of where they are in terms of stage. If we're working with the prop tech and maybe helping them either go up to the US if they're from APAC or come down here to APAC or wh- wherever, um, we'll probably will obviously look to much later in terms of that, so that'd be Series A plus, just to be able to get comfortable with the risk profile from from everyone. And just to add a little bit onto that, I think what is what we hear at least from a lot of those relationships is that they really appreciate obviously the extensive network because oftentimes obviously you're looking for a strategic investor right in a different continent if you want to enter, for example. So that's obviously something. Uh, that we're proud to have oftentimes in our net- network and are able to facilitate some of those introductions. That's great. And are you are you focusing on one part of the world? I know we've said global a, th- a bunch of times, but there is more deal flow in some places than others. And your particular, the place that you you sit in, ter- in the network will obviously have some strengths and some some weaknesses. Are you finding that, that there are flows that are, are bigger in some places than in others? Yeah, it's it's a good question. So we have uh, strong relationships across the globe that feed us uh, a deal. So I, I would have a lot of inbound uh, coming in. And obviously, we do, we make those assessments to see, obviously, as Stephen mentioned, what may be a good fit for our network. But obviously, needless to say, the US is, there is a lot of activity, Europe, APAC too. So I would say it's, it's it has never been as booming as it has been today. That's my interpretation of what we see. So we have a lot of large inbound. I would say majority is US, APAC, Europe. Right. Interesting that, that you know, there was already a lot of capital around and then every government everywhere just opened the spigots and put money, so much money in the, in, in the economy, it's going to show up everywhere. And obviously it's showing up in asset classes like this. Do you guys... Totally. If, if on the assumption that that some asset classes start to become a little bit more attractive, i.e., fixed income, do you think that we're going to see a slowdown when um, interest rates go up, as they're already starting to talk about doing, or do you think there's just so much money around it won't matter that much? I think that's part of it. I think obviously the funds have commitments for five to seven years or whatever the, the, their mandate is, so I think that there'll be a definite time lag within that. But I think as well that given the quantum of the real estate market and despite it's the challenges of doing things within it at scale, it's still relatively ripe for disruption in a number of ways. So I think if it was a more mature market, say mobile apps that gave you some music platforms, then definitely. But I think where there is so much opportunity within this, and I think as well that if you look at how assets have evolved, and they were evolving already, but COVID's obviously been a major catalyst of that. 
you're going to see real transformations in, in our opinion of cities. You, 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 if you look at your own personal way of how you consume real estate now, and if you broke it down into components of work, live, and, and spend, those components are very different now. And obviously assets were priced and built based on those rather fixed assumptions. So to be able to reposition a lot of those assets or compete in terms of yield, a lot of it's going to actually come down to the technology that's inputted either into building that or, or managing that. So I think that's going to drive a lot of demand for technology so you're going to start to see some real big winners. And as Evo said, we're seeing some real big winners already coming into the space, um, which are mature companies that are now getting to that billion dollar status. And then the final thing I would say as well is one of the real trends we're seeing is, particularly in APAC, you're seeing a lot of the, the emerging economies. And I, I don't think obviously India is emerging, but it's, it's not probably, I think, hit straps yet. But then you've got other countries like Indonesia, um, as Eva said as well, Latam, Brazil, and we're also starting to see Africa as well. You're starting to see these massive economies really mature in terms of how they approach building and their real estate um, sectors. So as a result of that, you're going to start to see new huge markets opening up for these potential technologies. So from an investment point of view, you've got a massive demand coming from existing, but then the opportunities within untapped markets to be able to use that technology is also rising as well. So they're really good components we feel for the investment community. Yeah. I think there's an incredible opportunity because regardless of the macroeconomic and central bank policy, you know, you, we can look at all these different scenarios, but I think the really big play here is obviously the regulatory pressure, right? Everybody is talking about net zero 20, 40, 20, 50, 70% of all those buildings approximately are already built. So if you want to get to those ambitious objectives, you know, you need, it's, it's all retrofits, right? So you need to do that with technology. So I think that in combination with green ESG, let's say it's also branding effort. Shell this week announcing Shell Ventures. I think they're um, deploying $1 billion of capital uh, into mobility, the, the, the energy transformation. I think a lot of those corporates are going to. So I think, again, all these technologies, regulatory pressure, all coming together, I think we're coming into an exponential age. And a decade, and I think a lot of people are actually not ready for what's coming. I, I really think it's going to accelerate pretty quickly this upcoming decade. Well, as somebody who, who builds and, and speaks a lot about certainly the construction part of that broader ecosystem, I'm really happy to hear you say that. I think that you're right that the amount that of, of trans, I don't know if disruption is always the word, but the, the amount of, of transformation that we still have yet to go is is phenomenal like the, the the world is needs a lot of of change and really exciting to hear that you guys are playing this really interesting central role in in you know big broad networks that are making that change happen well guys thank you for being on the podcast i've, I've really gotten a lot out of hearing your perspective on on property and prop tech which isn't something i always get to talk about so thank you thank you so much for having us really really enjoyed it thank you yes thank you thank you so much